1: And mayhem. <laughs> and these are things pulled from the headlines. First, murder. Uh, not to say that there isn't some mayhem <laughs> included with this first one. But I'm talking about this really fascinating case that is going on right now, a trial that's going on. Florida versus Scott Nelson. I'm not sure if you would have heard of it. It perhaps isn't getting... Um, you know, it's not like the OJ trial of the century, but it is um, being broadcast live, gavel to gavel. And uh, what makes it so fascinating is the defendant, Scott Nelson. He is a really interesting character. Uh, He has already been found guilty of murder as as of this date. Um, He was just recently found guilty of murder, the first part of the trial. And now the trial is in its Penalty phase. He's 55 years old. He has had um, a really sad, pathetic life. And he, um, I mean, yes, you can tell I'm somewhat sympathetic to him. And yes, he murdered a really sweet lady. She's like uh, the Mary Poppins um, type. <laughs> She's been compared to Mary Poppins. She's a nanny, she was a nanny in Florida. And her murder, which he calls collateral damage, was really um, an an unfortunate result of uh, a lifetime of turmoil and of hard knocks, hard breaks, and heartbreak, in a sense, uh, lots of heartbreaks, of Scott Nelson. You know, it was like... uh, so many things went wrong in his life from the very beginning, so uh, I think um let's see, should I start with the murder first or the this childhood? Well, I'll start with the murder because i know uh i know I know you want to know about that um just to give you the bare bones of that for right now uh the murder happened in twenty seventeen The victim was Jennifer Fulford. She was 56. Did I mention Scott Nelson is 55? Um, She was 56, and she was, in fact, collateral damage. I I know that that when he said that, that certainly didn't uh, buy him any sympathy from the jury calling her collateral damage, but he was trying to describe how he didn't really... He didn't uh, have anything necessarily against her per se. It was just the culmination of his life which had had all of these hard breaks and even when things looked like they might be getting better um, then something would happen and he would be back in the mud again, literally. So um, what happened was he had just gotten out of prison and um, he Uh, had no money. He was homeless. And um, he was in a very wealthy part of town in Florida. And he um, saw that she lived... It was basically a robbery. And as part of the robbery, he kidnapped her, uh, took her to the ATM and took money out and then ultimately murdered her in a very ruthless kind of way. He had bought uh, zip ties and duct tape and um, he, he, well, he took her to a deserted field and he uh, tied her up and put, uh, and tied her up with zip ties and then put duct tape over her nose and mouth, like all around her head, kind of like a mummy, and so she couldn't breathe, so she would have died of asphyxiation, Um, but just to make sure, that there wasn't any question about it, he stabbed her seven times. Now, yes, that all sounds horrible and ruthless, and it was, but let me now go backtrack and tell you about his life. Again, nothing that I'm... I don't mean to... um, excuse the murder in any way. She was really a very sweet woman. She was in the house as a nanny, as I said. Um, It was for a single dad, and he was very... The the dad, the person who owned the house, was very, very wealthy. And um, she would take care of the children and um, also the house. And she had a husband, and she had her own children, And in fact, really a sad twist of fate, Uh, the day that she was murdered, her child was giving birth to, um, I think it was her child was a boy, and his wife was giving birth. So she never got to see her grandchild. And um, so, you know, all the way around, and everybody, of course, talks about her um, like she was a saint. She was a really sweet woman. And so, yes. Uh, you know, it's like um, murdering um, Mary Poppins, and so obviously that kind of sets up a whole feeling in the jury um, when the murder victim is such a an innocent, sweet character as attested to by many people who literally testified about her. But let me go back and tell you about Scott Nelson's Childhood. Uh, he was born to a schizophrenic mother, who was hospitalized a number of times. He, uh, his father, was very abusive. He was um, he abused the mother in front of the children. Um, he was the father was also abusive, emotionally and physically abusive. I'm talking about now to the mother. You know, to, in other words, to Scott Nelson's mother, the father's wife, to um, Scott Nelson's two brothers, and, um, and to Scott. And uh, when he was around 12, his parents got divorced and his father uh, abandoned the family. And he, Scott, became the, the caretaker of his schizophrenic mother. And clearly from some of the descriptions of the testimony, it seems as though a number of inappropriate things went on because she wanted Scott to take the place of the father, be the man of the house. And um, so one has only to suspect that there might have been some sexual abuse as well by his mother. Um, They lived together after the father left. And the brothers left, so it was just, uh, they all left, and it was Scott and his mother, who was schizophrenic and had lots of problems. Um, His siblings, his brothers, introduced him when he was very young to alcohol and drugs. Um, Clearly, the brothers, you know, who were living in this very, very, very dysfunctional household had their own problems and, you know, had gotten into alcohol and drugs. Um and he uh but he didn't get into trouble with the law when he was young which is very significant because the um the state the prosecutors psychiatric expert um well a psychologist testified and tried to claim that Scott was um had sociopathy had um, um a sociopathist, uh, he was He was a sociopath, <laughs> and that's what this psychologist said on behalf of the state, um, and which was really not true because uh, one of the many um, diagnostic criteria for sociopathy um, is to have shown, well, first of all, to any personality disorder, a personality disorder is something that is formulated in childhood. In other words, that um, something that forms the person's personality, and, and and your personality is formed by things that happen in your childhood. So it could be extreme things like, you know, physical or sexual abuse. It could be things like um, being bullied in school. It could be things like uh, moving from place to place as a child. And always being the new kid in school, not having any friends, all kinds of things. You know, all kinds. of... It could be from a parent dying during childhood, or um, or a parent having a mental illness. You know, there there are there are all kinds of things that can that can form your personality. And yes, in a way, you could say that yes, he had all these traumas Scott did during his childhood, so he could pre- potentially have a personality disorder. But he had much more serious psychiatric problems than that. And in any case, um, it wouldn't have been a, a, um, a sociopathic personality. It could, maybe one could argue that it was a dependent personality, for example, or a um, schizotypal personality. That, that was one of the things that the defense psychologist talked about. Um, but not necessarily being a sociopath. So, And one of the things that speaks against his being a sociopath is the fact that he did not, in fact, have a kind of conduct disorder. He did not skip school um, to a, an extent. He did not get in trouble with the law, like for, um, for stealing, shoplifting, or other kinds of minor offenses that people who go on to have sociopathic personalities ultimately have done as a child um i'll get into his death diagnosis later, but in any case, so he had he had all of these traumas during his childhood, and he ultimately um, did want uh, get into trouble when he was um beyond childhood when he was an adult already he in nineteen ninety four and in twenty ten he, had, he was convicted of robberies, felony robberies, and this put him into prison. And he was altogether, he was in prison for 25 years, and a lot of that time was spent in solitary confinement, sometimes because um, of trouble that he was involved in, but most of the time it was more for his own safety. Because he's a little guy, you know, he's, he's, um, it's hard to tell exactly how tall he is from television, but, um, he's certainly, he's very thin, and, uh, of course, part of that is from being in prison for 25 years. Um, he's, he's skinny, and he's, he's, you know, he's, he's the type of guy that you, you know, that, that old comic, uh, cartoon, um, I went to the beach, and bullies kicked sand in my face. You know, he would be the kind of person. And plus, he, he's very. Um, even though he had some some deficits because he had head injuries uh, during his lifetime, he had several head injuries starting when he was a child, actually, and in car accidents, and then later, um, people got beat him up, and um, he had a number of of head traumas. So that also uh, contributed to his psychological and mental problems, but um, but he was he you could see him being someone in prison who would be likely to have been picked on and attacked, and in fact he was raped at least once in jail in 2015, and um, he woke up you know he was he was uh, brutalized and became unconscious and then woke up. And then he was tested for uh, hepatitis C. He had been tested, had general blood tests before this happened, and he was okay, he didn't have hepatitis C. And then after this happened, he did. So clearly the rapist had hepatitis C and um, gave it to him during the rape. So um, so there he was in jail for these two robberies and, and altogether 25 years and while he was in jail, there were some notes in, the, in his records where he was on suicide risk, he was found to have high anxiety, paranoia, depressed mood, a mood disorder. Um, and so a lot of the time that he was in jail or prison, he was actually, and he was put in some high security prisons, um, he was put in solitary confinement for a lot of that time. Now, when he was ultimately released uh, in 2017, right before he committed this murder, he was released in the worst shape he had ever been in in his life. Because not only did he have all these psychiatric problems, and I'm going to go into more details about what I think his diagnosis was, um, but not only did he have serious psychiatric problems and this history of of incredible traumas since childhood, physical and mental traumas. Um, but he also had had physical problems. He had a colostomy uh, and a colostomy bag because the prisons didn't give him the second surgery that he was supposed to have. He was supposed to have a surgery to help or to try to repair um, his colon so that he wouldn't have to have a colostomy, you know, with bags that you have to keep replacing. I mean, can you imagine? So, so, and when he was released, he ultimately, very soon after he was released, he was homeless. Um, He had high blood pressure. He had an irregular heartbeat, hepatitis C from the rape, um, his psychiatric problems, homeless. They didn't release him with any medications nor did they give him his identification back, a social security card. And they just sent him out into the, <laughs> into the street um, and, and, you know, said goodbye. I mean, this, this is um, incredible odds for somebody without half of these problems. And you, you know, it's bad enough being homeless on the street, but being homeless on the street with a colostomy bag, which you have to keep changing every day, um, and keeping clean or else you could die of sepsis if you got infection that would be leading the infection right into your body and you could die from sepsis. And what happened was when he got released, um, he did manage to find an employer who hired him to be a painter. And he had the job for about six weeks and the employer gave him a place to sleep. It wasn't like... Uh, you know, it wasn't the Brits, but it was a roof. And, um, he was doing okay. He was being paid for being a painter. And everything was getting better. <laughs> but then his parole officer came. In fact, when we, when the trial started, he blamed, and he had a chance to testify, he blamed the murder, um, or the sequence of events that led to the murder on his parole officer who told his employer that he was um, a felon. Well, he he actually had told his employer himself because he knew he had to report to an employer that you're a felon. Um, But his parole officer talked to the employer and really put him down, really made the employer afraid of him, and got the employer to fire him. And that was, the, that was the ultimate, that was the final straw in this man who had been struggling all his life, from childhood on, from birth on, really, um, and whatever hopes he had of landing on his feet, yet again scrambling to try to land on his feet, were dashed when his parole officer, of all people, ruined it with the employer. Well, stay tuned. I will tell you more about the story of Florida versus Scott Nelson when we come back. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Luberman.
0: And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times, www.drcarol.com.
1: These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit.
2: the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
0: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866- 472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Don't
1: write yourself off. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's i on your, your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today about murder and mayhem. So far, we're doing the murder part. <laughs> uh, uh, Talking about the case of Florida versus Scott Nelson, who admittedly, actually admitted this on the stand, he, he admitted to killing Jennifer Fulford, who was a Mary Poppins, basically, a, a very sweet nanny. Um, who he murdered in twenty seventeen. He has already been found guilty of that murder, um, certainly not helped by his own admission on the stand uh that he did murder her. Um, and now the trial is in the penalty phase. Now I know I sometimes seem I, I have I'm a forensic psychiatrist and uh and an expert witness and I have testified in countless murder Trials and it's, um, criminal trials and civil trials, and um, and so you know sometimes um, I may be accused of being too sympathetic to the uh, defendant, who particularly if on they're on trial for murder, but you know I see the person. What happened to this person, starting to a person, I'm talking about Scott today, but like in general, when I am involved in cases, uh, defense aspects of cases where the person is accused of murder, um, I see there, I get into, you know, when I'm the one um, examining the person, I get into great detail about their childhood. And when I hear about horrendous childhoods like what I've been telling you about in regard to Scott Nelson, then yes, I am um, sympathetic towards them. Doesn't excuse the fact that they murdered someone, but it all has to do with what their state of mind was at the time of the murder as to whether um, they, you know, whether it was, uh, whether they could fit the definition of insanity for example, at the time of the murder. So um, I've been telling you about Scott Nelson and his horrendous childhood, a schizophrenic mother a who was hospitalized oftentimes during his childhood, a father who was physically and emotionally abusive to the mother, to Scott, to his brothers. Uh, his father was described as a narcissist, though I doubt that's the worst thing that one could say about the father. Um... And then Scott's siblings uh, got him into alcohol and drugs very early in his life. His mother, after his father and mother were divorced and his father left, uh, he was the only one ultimately being in the house with his mother taking care of his schizophrenic mother. And as I said earlier, I think there is likely some sexual abuse that the mother perpetrated on him. She wanted him to take the place of his father. And so, you know, that plus all the head traumas, uh, car accidents, various other situations that he was in that caused him head injuries, Um, you know, one thing after the other, and um, so he was always, he was never really able to kind of make it in life, and he was always after money because he wasn't able to make much on his own, but. Uh, although he was very intelligent, at least he started out as being very intelligent. Obviously, these head injuries did not help his cognitive functioning. But um, just listening to him talk, you know, he's—you can tell he's really intelligent. Not just the words and the vocabulary and so on, but also the way that he uh, has manipulated to some degree the um, the trial. You know, even from before it started, he was writing letters to the judge and all that. Uh, he doesn't have any, <laughs> he doesn't really think that the, the order or the uh, way that, ways that trials are supposed to be conducted apply to him, uh, which is why that I diagnosed him from before I even saw the trial, just the news clips of him before the trial actually started, I diagnosed him as having manic depressive or bipolar disorder which I still believe that he has. Okay, so let me tell you some of the other things. He talked about how life in prison was torture. And um, he gave us some insights into things that happen in prison, such as uh, how the inmates are often turning on the fire alarm sprinkler system as kind of a, a rebellion, a way to rebel against the tough guards. And so when that happens, um, when they pull the fire alarm sprinkler system, it causes a flood uh, of water and a fire retardant and of things that are in the toilets that then get swept up in with this water um, that they are walking in in the prison. Very gra- gross picture. Should have given you an alert. Um then he talked about for example of a prison in Kansas where the temperature was over 100 degrees in the summer and freezing in the winter. He talked about an experience he had uh where Christmas morning where he was tied to his bed he said like a dog by an officer dressed as Santa Claus and this was to entertain the prisoners. He you know he was all in four point Restraints, his arms, each of his arms, each of his legs, uh, for Christmas morning, to entertain the prisoners. You know, which again goes to what I was saying before about how I think he was probably sort of um, bullied, picked on the runt of the litter. Um, He clearly he talked about being treated like a caged, like an animal, treated like an animal. Now he had two things that he wanted his lawyers to ask him two questions. And his lawyers, who really have been doing an amazing job, these two women have got to be... Um, they, they must have spent, <laughs> it seems like, a lifetime in preparing this case. They were really excellent and really went all out for him, uh, although he complained to the judge that he had ineffective counsel which is, by the way, one um, way to get an appeal on a case if you can prove that you had ineffective counsel. Uh, Of course, I think it would be pretty hard for him to prove that with this case because they, you know, they really went all out, as I said. So um, he wanted them, particularly one of the reasons why he said he had ineffective counsel was because he wanted to... um, them to ask him two main questions. He said, this is why I'm, I'm uh, going through this trial or this is why I wanted to testify. Um, I guess he could have, you know, pled guilty from the beginning uh, and maybe tried to have a, a plea bargain. But he, the reason why he didn't do that was because he clearly is relishing, has been relishing, the attention that this trial has been giving him, gavel to gavel on TV, and um, he loves, you know. This is part of the grandiosity that he has in his hypomanic phase of manic depressive illness. So he wanted to, and so he wrote letters to the judge. And um, the judge called on him eventually after in the penalty phase, uh, and you know, she said, "What are you want them to ask you two questions?" Okay, so he let the he let him testify again. And um, so the, his attorney asked him, how has prison affected you? And he had said before, you know, about, he said a number of times how he was treated like an animal, and he gave various examples, and I just told you some of them. Um, so when she said uh, this again at the end, you know, one of the questions that he wanted them to ask, uh, how has prison affected you mentally, he said, I am a homicidal maniac. I am a homicidal maniac. Now, if you were looking for something to get the jury in your penalty phase to give you the death penalty, (laughs) that might be something you would say. And indeed, he might be trying to, um, well, that was the other question. His lawyers would only ask him this one question. They wouldn't ask him the second one. But then at cross-examination when he was testifying in the penalty phase, the state, the prosecutor, asked him the second question. I don't know if the prosecutor knew that this was his second question, but he he asked him this. He said, do you want to be sentenced to death? And what do you think Scott Nelson said? He said yes. So now, you know, why did he say that? Why did he say something that would give the jury permission to give him the death penalty, if not encourage them to do it. Now, in a perfect world, or, well, none of, none of this is perfect, but in a perfect world, Jennifer Falford wouldn't be dead, but um, in a world that would be better for him, in other words, to not get the death penalty, uh, you would not say, yes, I want the death penalty. You know, in a way, one would hope, if you're if you're a defense attorney, you would hope that by his saying yes, he wants the death penalty, that that might make the jury realize that he really is crazy and that he was crazy at the time of the crime and therefore he should not get the death penalty. Uh, another, he may have been saying it because of either, he really, you know, 55, he's lived a life of like uh 255, you know, with all the... Um, various things that he has been through in his life, you know, one <laughs> being knocked down time and time again, perhaps, uh, especially with the 25 years in prison, which were so, you know, which he said turned him into a, treated him like a ma- an animal and turned him into a homicidal maniac. Um, you know, perhaps he wants to die uh, because he can't deal with life anymore. Or, Perhaps by saying this and hoping that it will make them give him the death penalty, um, that will give him an opportunity to have his case looked at automatically to see if there is something that is an appealable issue. I don't know. I don't even know if he knows. Um, but let me talk about some of the his psyche. Uh, I said that the, the district attorney's expert, the state's expert psychologist, claimed that he had a personality disorder. Well, you know, that's pretty ridiculous because, yes, indeed, as I was saying earlier, maybe he has, um, you know, a schizotypal personality disorder or a dependent personality disorder or something underlying his major problems but those are not what is causing him to be like this. His major problems are that he has PTSD from these various traumas, um, and he clearly is manic depressive and predominantly hypomanic during this whole trial. Otherwise, he wouldn't get on the stand and talk the way he did, or not even on the stand sometimes he would be shouting out in the middle of the courtroom when he was just sitting at his at the defense table it wasn't his turn to speak <laughs> um but he would just shout out things and um i think after the after he was found guilty um, his lawyers must have had a talk with him to get him to behave a little more um a little more politely, a little more uh, with decorum, because he is trying harder. He has been trying harder to um, not to just scream out in the middle of court and things like that and, you know, to call the judge, sir, and all kinds of things like that. But, um, you know, and it's interesting because one of the diagnoses actually that the defense psychiatrist came up with, she, as I said, uh, mainly said that he had PTSD um, and she said that either it was her idea or she read it in the, in the files. Anyway, she was thinking about the diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder. Now, schizoaffective disorder, schizo- it's really schizoaffective, schizoaffective schizophrenia. That is a type of schizophrenia, which in a sense combines manic depressive illness and schizophrenia. It's schizophrenia, the thought disorder of schizophrenia, with the mood disorder of bipolar illness. So that, that is possible, but I think because his mother was schizophrenic, and that is genetic, so one would assume that he inherited a predisposition to schizophrenia. It is possible, since this was a while ago that his mother was diagnosed schizophrenic and in the hospital and so on, that she was misdiagnosed. She might well have been manic depressive herself or schizoaffective herself. Um, but I think, you know, he does not have the thought disorder of someone with schizophrenia. He was, he was able to put his thoughts together quite well and quite slyly, you know, <laughs> sly like a fox. And um, so I, I think it's fairly fair, should have been fairly obvious, <laughs> but it wasn't, that he was manic-depressive. Um, oh, there were some interesting things. He wrote to Bernie Sanders and um, uh, some other political figures to complain about what was happening to him this is during the 25 years of incarceration to tell them about how he was being treated like an animal and to ask for help. And in fact... One of the times um, that he wrote to Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders apparently contacted the warden, and um, this was particularly in in regard to his colostomy and the fact that they weren't giving him a second surgery to correct it. And the warden wrote to Bernie Sanders. I mean, it's kind of ironic. This is coming out during the presidential, uh, um, you know, the run to the presidency when Bernie Sanders is all over the place. Somehow, I don't know how he feels about being connected to this case, but anyway, so the warden wrote back to Bernie Sanders and told him that he would take care of um, Scott Nelson's colostomy, but in fact, he didn't. They didn't. He was discharged, as I said, without it being taken care of and homeless and um, sort of on his own in order to take care of himself at great risk for getting infection, and getting sepsis, which can be uh, um, a, death, a death sentence in itself. So, um, you know, another part of this, what he's getting from this trial, even if he does, even if they do give him the death penalty, which, by the way, has to be decided by a unanimous verdict, um, he also wants attention, wants his name out there and his, his behavior, who he is out there, because he is undoubtedly hoping for movies and books to be written about him. Even though he wouldn't be able to profit financially from that, it would certainly feed his ego and and make him feel important finally in his life. In fact, the trial is making him feel important finally in his life. Well, when we come back, we will talk about the mayhem part of today's show. I said it was murder and mayhem. We will get to mayhem. And if we have time, we'll get to another murder. But this uh, Florida versus Scott Nelson was the main murder that I wanted to talk to you about, and um, and get you to look into it if you haven't uh, heard of this yet. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Mm-hmm.
2: VoiceAmerica.com
0: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
1: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking to you today about murder and mayhem. We have just done murder. <laughs> now we're going to do mayhem. <laughs> um, this mayhem that I am going to talk about is in regard particularly, this is, uh, you know, this is like, since we're still close to July 4th, this is about patriotism and the mayhem that is destroying patriotism. Um, in fact, I have started a hashtag on Twitter um, that I love, that I love. I started it and I love it. And if you love it too, um, I would be grateful if you would use it on Twitter. Uh, I called it Make Patriotism Cool Again. Okay. Um, and my Twitter, by the way, is at Dr. Carol MD. So at Dr. Carol, C-A-R-O-L-E, M-D. Um, the mayhem so two examples of mayhem let's start well first let me tell you in case you're wondering about you know why this is uh, a big deal there was a poll that was done recently that shows that patriotism is at a record low because of the polarization regarding politics our polarized politics is destroying our patriotism and they found in this poll that 2002 to 2004 were the years when patriotism was at its highest and that was because of 9-11 so do we need another terror attack to get back our patriotism I certainly hope not (laughs) that would uh, that would be very sad (laughs) Um, so who are the, the two things that are driving, you know, <laughs> driving me crazy this, uh, especially around this July 4th, are first Colin Kaepernick, you may well have been hearing about what he did, the, the latest thing that he did. Uh, you know, it's not good enough he's, he's <laughs> to get attention or now it's hard for him to get attention taking a knee. Um, so he's moving on to other things their Nike had a sneaker that they were going to um promote bring out for July 4th and it had on the back uh, the American flag the Betsy Ross American flag now Colin Kaepernick this guy who does not know his history not known for being um the most brilliant bulb in the shack um he decided that the Betsy Ross flag was bad because there have been some people who are um, racist and hate mongers who have hijacked the flag to some degree. But this is a super, super small amount of people, small amount of times, um, this is not what one thinks of or even knew about. I didn't even know about it. I had to do research into all of this. Like, I thought, what? What is wrong? You know, if it was Betsy Ross. I mean, his, his point was, I mean, he was, he made it seem like Betsy Ross was a racist. So I did a whole bunch of uh, research and found that, no, <laughs> Betsy Ross, little old lady, was not. <laughs> well, I don't know how old she was when she made the flag, but you know what I mean. <laughs> it was back back in the day. Um, she was not a racist and the flag had nothing to do with racism. And just because a few, um, uh, people who are racist used the flag on a, on an occasion or two, that doesn't mean that we should destroy the, um, the, the first American flag you know, just look at that as racist, kind of similar to some of the statues that are being taken down places. I mean, some of them are more one could see um, the relevance, but many of them, you can't see the relevance. And in any case, it was a part of history. So um, so Nike, in their infinite wisdom, because, you know, Ka- Colin Ka- Kaepernick speaks and Nike listens, right? I mean, it's so absurd. Um, So they they withdrew this sneaker, really cute sneakers, by the way. Um, They withdrew it from sale. And, I mean, you know, the idea of Nike, a company like Nike, uh, you know, just a big uh, company, a big corporation, listening to Colin Kaepernick, that is enough to send shivers. It should be enough to send shivers down your spine. It's certainly enough to send shivers down my spine. And it is a very slippery slope. So does that mean that whatever Colin Kaepernick decides he doesn't like, that people, the companies, are going to take it off the market? I hope to God he doesn't decide he doesn't like Rocky Road, because that is one of my favorite things to eat in the world. Um, I mean, it's like, it's mind-boggling. Um, If I was listening to this, by the way, (laughs) I wouldn't believe it. So if you don't believe it, you go look this up. You go Google it if you haven't heard about it, because um, I know it it is mind-boggling. What is even more mind-boggling, however, is the fact that after this happened, Nike's stock went up. After Nike did this anti-American thing, pulling the American flag off the market, the sneaker with it, its stock goes up because, you know, I presumably people are figuring that, uh, that people will or have bought, um, more Nike products because of this ridiculous connection that, that Colin Kaepernick, Professor Colin Kaepernick, right? Um, he's not a professor. I'm kidding. I'm being sarcastic. Um, He made that connection. Very sad. Very, very sad. So, another hashtag that I put on, this one I didn't make up, but um, another hashtag that is going around that I endorsed is boycott Nike. Then, um, no sooner do we have the Colin Kaepernick fiasco, but we now have the women's soccer team fiasco. The women's soccer team won the World Cup, yay, Congratulations, that's fabulous. However, what's not fabulous is the fact that um, they um, have become horrendous role models. They are role models in the sense that apparently um, there were lots of young girls, women who um, have been uh, coming to where they are now since they got home from, from playing the World Cup uh, you know, they, they are icons, role models for a lot of young women. So then, what do you think about the fact that when these young women see these um, women soccer players dropping the United States flag in order to pose for a picture, what 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 uh, message does that give from these role models? Yes, it's true. Um, they were taking pictures after their win, and so um, some of the girls just dropped the American flag to run and take a picture. <laughs> I mean, that shows where their priorities are. Um, not only that, but even before this happened, when they won an English team, they, um, one of the players, I think it was the worst of the bunch, Megan Rapinoe, she is the ringleader of the group, and she is so anti-American. It's it's very, I mean, I was going to say it's very sad, but it's worse than sad because of the fact, especially now that they won, because of the fact that they're such role models. So anyhow, I believe it was she, it was one of the girls on the team who after they won um, a a match against the English, she uh, was in the middle of the court, in the field, and she pretended to be sipping tea. So like taunting them, sipping tea, you know, ha-ha, we won, kind of thing. Um, This Megan Rapinoe is out of control. They are biting the hand that feeds them. Certainly our tax dollars contribute to uh, their being able to play soccer in the first place. (laughs) Um, And they are going to reject the invitation from the White House, at least that's the plan as I speak right now, um, reject the invitation by the White House in order to, uh, be, you know, as a... as a... Um, as a diss against Trump. And and to make it worse, they're going to go to Congress, which is fine. You know, it's great that they should be applauded for their soccer, but... Um, but they are going to Congress uh, because they were or at the invitation of um, Ocasio AOC, I don't even know, <laughs> AOC, the woman, I'm not going to say her, her whole name, um, who is the most, one of the most, she and Ilhan Omar are the two most anti-Trump people in Congress. And so as a way for AOC to diss Trump, she invited the girls, you know, knowing that they were not going to go to Trump's knowing or assuming that they were hoping that they weren't going to go to the white house to be honored after they won. She invited them to Congress and they are going, I mean, this world mayhem, this is mayhem. This is exactly what I'm trying to talk about. Um, It's great that they know how to play soccer and that they won but they're before the world stage playing the world cup and they should be behaving in a way that is an honor to america not dropping the american flag not not going to the white house I mean, what does that tell the world that they're dissing the president these these, these young girls <laughs> who are they to diss the president of the united states and i would say that it's not just because it's Trump that I'm saying that, that they should go. Whoever the president of the United States was at the time or is at the time that a team wins, the team should do the, you know, should appreciate the honor of the invitation and go and not embarrass not just the president, but the whole United States in front of the world. I mean, what it looks like, these young women just showing the world, oh, we don't care that we're invited to the White House. We, just, we want to show that we don't like him. <laughs> you know, it's not about liking the president or not liking the president. It's about honoring the office of the president and not being disrespectful in front of the whole world. Well, again, if... Um, if you if this has struck a chord with you, um, please <laughs> please retweet the hashtag #MakePatriotismCoolAgain because people like Colin Kaepernick and the women's soccer players are not cool, are dissing America, and thinking that they're cool when really it's it's destroying our country at a time when we are threatened by. Um, terrorists and uh, and Iran and North Korea and China and Russia. Um, I mean, really? And you're not going to go to the White House when you are invited. That is is disgusting. Well, thank you for listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
0: Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.